Well, amen. You know, I always think when I sing that song that the chap must have gone to Eton. Sounds most, most like the boating song, you know. She goes, saves. You just imagine you swanning down the river with that. Um, swans go down the river, you know. Um, we're turning to Romans chapter... Um, Romans chapter 5. Uh, glory to God. We're going on with Romans. If, you, if Carolyn can stay awake, you know, she goes to sleep, I'll whistle. Um, it's one of the joys of having young children. Thank God it's over for me. I do appreciate it. You young people that are getting married, you don't know what you're looking forward to. Thank God we look back. Ah, what a joy. For the joy that's set behind us. Amen. Chapter 5 of Romans. Hmm. The old Heather's smiling. She's a granny now, you know. It's all right, isn't it? <laughs> Dearie, when I become a granny, I'll know it's all behind me, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go and see the doctor. Um, <laughs> uh, glory to God. And verse 5, here we go. Romans chapter 5, eyes down, verse 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his, his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the reconciliation. Uh, I want to just deal with that part. The atonement is reckoned, the words there means reconciliation. Um, for when we were yet, verse uh, 6, without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, something that's very important is but there has to come a time when we're without strength. Uh, and we have to come to a time of realizing we're without strength. One of the problems with people are, is uh, one of their problems, uh, they have too much strength. 
Uh, there's a story I was reading of Flavel, you know, uh, in 1564. A man came from Poole and um, he got very depressed. He'd sailed from Poole and he was very depressed. Uh, if you've ever been to Poole, you can understand it, um, especially if you go to the Pentecostal church there. But um, he uh, was a depressed man and uh, he went uh, that night uh, to bed and uh, as there was their want in, in those days, he was a man of 22, he slept in the same bed as his brother. Fortunately, we're more civilized in this day and age. Obviously, he was an unmarried man, a young man. And in the middle of the night, he despaired so much that he got up and he took a knife and he slit his throat and rather deep actually and when he had cut his throat he decided that wasn't good enough so he stuck the knife into his stomach as well um, now may I say if you are going to do it there's far easier ways of doing it and it won't mess up the bedclothes so much but anyway this guy that's what he did now the doctor fortunately there was a physician next door although I don't know in those days whether it was fortunate to have a physician next door. But anyway, one was called by his brother when he heard this gurgling noise. Uh, he thought his brother was gargling, I suppose. Um, and he called him in and um, they sold up this fellow's throat because it was all kind of cut. If you're going to slit your throat, never do it there. All you do is cut your windpipe. You don't kill yourself. You just make funny noises. And anyway... Um, it's something you want to know because when I was in the police I found that was one of the most awful things they always do it at the front instead of the side you know, at least if you're going to do the job they should do it properly and you take them off to hospital that's, a lot of, that's right isn't it Albert like, you, never, you never die that end do you terrible, all you do is affect your voice but anyway we don't want to go into that I'm just useful piece of information for those who wish to know um, uh, and um, you can see where I used to have to deal with people oh dear the only thing you do is your windpipe and you just get wind coming up and this guy he was in a bad state because he'd done it quite deeply and he'd stabbed himself in the stomach quite deeply and because he when he talked the noise was a bit funny the physician gave him up for dead and so he just sewed it up and stuck a bit of plaster on the front of his throat and stuffed back what he could into his stomach and stitched it up and you know it was very rough and ready job I suppose oh, none of you, you're not squeamish are you Charlie um, anyway he, he pushed it all back and you know probably put his foot on it as well and then stitched it up and left this guy to die and Flavel turns up uh, and uh, realizing this man hasn't many minutes to live you see the type of books I read don't you <laughs> horror comics Bell and Beano that you read you know um, and they they stitched him up and, and Flavel comes in and decides this guy's not got very long to live and he writes in his comment that he only thought the surgeon had bothered to put the plaster on because his voice sounded so terrible with it off. And so he begins to talk to him, and he, he says, 
do you believe in your um, soul is saved? And the man says, oh yes. He said, I trust in God for eternal life. And so Flavel spent an hour dissuading this man who was about to meet his maker uh, with a cut windpipe um, that he really wasn't saved. And he took an hour. And he records in his book that in the end the man began to lose strength in the false hope. And uh, he spoke to him for about two and a half hours. And um, didn't expect to see him again. He left, um, having brought the man to a realization of his sin and his need for a savior. And in the evening he came back and the man was still alive though it does record in the book, which I'll just mention for accuracy's sake, sake, that his stomach had begun to come out again, you know, of the wound. <laughs> and so they, they decided that they had to operate, which was very unfortunate in those days. But anyway, he spent time talking to him again, and in the end the man saw his own vileness and saw that he was the chief of sinners, and began to realize the absolute degradation in his soul. And it took uh, a couple of hours of favor talking to him, and he left him that night. And the next morning he went back, and they were about to operate on him because it was beginning to bulge rather large by this time. And so he thought that once they made the incision, the chap would die. So he thought he'd better just make sure he was soundly saved. So he talked to him, and the man said, he said, you know, I, he said, I realize there's no hope I have in myself at all. It's what the glorious Savior has done for me. Nothing I can do, nothing that I am, nothing that, that um, I can say or believe will save me. It's what Christ did on Calvary's cross that saves me. And needless to say, the surgeon came in then, probably pulled back the bedclothes, though, in those days they might not have had any, and began work on him. Flavor records that it was rather gory, and so I won't trouble you with the mi minor details of it. Um, safe to say that when the surgeon had finished and wiped his boot, he probably put it on his tummy and stitched him up again, and hoped all would be well. And uh, amazingly, the chap healed completely. Uh, I think the surgeon was more amazed <laughs> than the chap. Uh, he healed completely and was soundly converted. But he had to come to a place where he had no strength or hope in himself. And all of us, uh, at some point, need to come to a realization of our total inability to do anything for God or believe anything. And... Um, that is one of the big problems in life. Now you'd think someone who was just about to meet his maker who'd slid his throat in despair and uh, churned out his stomach, you know, trying to do harikari or whoever it was, um, would have lost all hope of salvation. But not so. And there are a lot of people who go to absurd lengths and believe absurd things about themselves and their self-will and their pride and their arrogance is such 
but they have never really come to a place of seeing their own inability to save themselves. If you want to climb a high building, I assure you, you won't get to the top if you bend down and pull your shoestrings. Uh, because whilst your feet have to go upwards, you pulling your shoestrings is not going to help you. I mean, it just doesn't lift you. Uh, although some try, you cannot pull yourself up by your own bootlaces. It just doesn't work. But a lot of people try it, don't they? And self-effort in the Christian gospel is totally devoid of sanity. There is no way that I can save myself. There's no way I can make myself better. There's nothing I can do about my state. And so I need to come to the place that Paul talks of here. Uh, for when we were yet without strength. Now most people have never ever come to the place of being without strength. Realizing their total inability and casting all their care on God who careth for them. Most people really believe that they could please God, could do something that would delight his heart. Um, could do a lot to change themselves, they could repent, they could, I mean, how many times do I hear this awful term, well, I sought God. Well, I find that hideous. I can't accept it and don't believe it. I know that God seeks us. God saves us. And it's not our um, glorious ability, it's his wonderful grace that brings us to salvation. And he, he says, when we're out without strength, now most people have never come to a knowledge of being without strength. In, though you are without strength, you might not see it. The most awful thing is someone who has a complaint that they can't see. That's terrible. Awful if you have a complaint that you can't see. Thank God for mirrors. You've no excuse. Uh, but a lot of people have complaints they can't see. Now what you do see is what isn't a complaint. And I'm not talking about a complaint in the s sense of complaining. I'm talking about a complaint in the sense of something that's wrong. And we need to understand that. We need to see it for what it is. You know, our problems in life is we don't look at ourselves and look at ourselves with God's light. We look at ourselves the way we want to see ourselves. It's called self-worship. And in fact, we very often make God into our image. I've been talking to someone this week I told them they were in error and they won't believe me. Uh, it annoys me that people just won't face truth. When you face them up dead square with it, they'll turn or grin or laugh. They don't believe you. And that's tragedy. Um, for in due time, Christ died 
Now there was a time appointed for Christ to come and to die. And that was when we were without strength. Christ died for the ungodly. Now who did he die for? The ungodly. Now to say you believe in God or to say you follow God or to say you accept God does not make you godly. You're ungodly until you have a true experience of Jesus Christ. And in fact, uh, a lot of people's God is the image of themselves. As I've so often said, people make God into their own image. Do you remember Romans chapter 1? They change the image of an incorruptible God into the likeness of corruptible man, four-footed beasts, or like you, creeping things, uh, and the whole thing, isn't that right? Uh, and the whole thing changing the likeness of God. And you'll find that a lot of people do that. And when you ask them about God, you can always discover uh, whether they really know God as God because once you start asking about the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the fearsome anger of God, they don't want to know a God like that. People will say to you, well, if God's really like that, I don't want to know him. Have you ever heard someone say that? If God's like the way you portray him, I don't want to know him. Of course they don't. They want a God after their own heart. And what we have to do is we pre present a living, true God, and people have to take that truth as it is. And that's the awful thing. People don't want that type of God. They don't want a God of judgment, God of indignation and wrath. They want a God of tranquility and peace and compromise and wishy-washiness. And God's not like that. And therefore, even though God's not like that, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the people who had lost the image of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were made in the divine image. When he sinned, you can leave her alone, you know, Jamie. Uh, when he sinned, then the fact was that the image of God was lost. It was marred. And we have to understand that we have lost the image of God. And what God wants to restore us to is the likeness of his son. He wants to bring back that likeness. And we need to understand that we're godless. We're without the image of God. We're not like God any longer. We were created like him in Adam. But we fell. In Adam we fell. It's coming on to say that. Um, uh, in um, Well, I don't want to go down to it. Um, really, but in verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Um, I don't want to go into that, because I'll be going into it next time. But the thing is, that what we have to understand is the image of God is lost in man. Now, creation's fallen creation. My wife said to me the other night, um, no, it was the other afternoon. Uh, I, we were thinking about uh, the Antarctic. 
you know. Now it's interesting in the Antarctic. Now they send people there and, and to explore this place and it's a massive place and there's an island in the Antarctic that they've gone to explore and they've taken this boat through these great ice fields and they've finally landed there and it's mighty cold. It's not a warm place. I wouldn't feel comfortable there. Um, and, and there they are, stuck there, miles from anywhere, in the frozen wastes, searching for oil or for gold or for whatever man wants them to find. I don't know what they're looking for, really. It never really explained. They were just scientists, really, weren't they? Looking for natural reserves. Daft. They're using a lot of natural reserves to try and find some. But there we are. And what we have to understand is creation's fallen. God never created the Antarctic like that. Do you realize that when heaven and earth were created, that there was no rain? When heaven and earth was created, there wasn't fog. There wasn't snow. There weren't any of the terrible weathers and there wasn't death either. God created life. And you see, when the fall came, everything went out of true. And creation's out of true. As I've pointed out to you many times, even magnetic north isn't true. It's a few degrees off. Everything's a few degrees off now what God intended it to be. And we were told to subdue the earth. You imagine, uh, when Adam and Eve were there, there were no thorns and thistles, no briar trees. They came as part of the curse. All the awful things and the weather, the inclement weather. You imagine if you had beautiful sunshine and in the cool of the evening. Now, you know it was warm in the Garden of Eden and God walked in the cool of the evening in the garden and said, Adam, where are you? It was nice. You imagine it. Beautiful. Well, I can imagine it anyway if you can't. And um, I've been to places where I could believe just the way it would be. You know, beautiful. The air is so crisp and yet so warm with the warmth and no breeze. Beautiful. And... Um, I can imagine the fragrance of the garden. And now we don't get that, do we? In this day and age. We get up in the morning and it's foggy, it's cold, there's frost on your window of your car, you drive off down the road and you can't see through one window or the other. It's dangerous, by the way, don't you ever drive off down the road when you've got frost in your window. I remember when I, shortly after I got married, um, I was late. I had to go to the doctor. Um, I can't remember why now. But I, I, my wife only cleaned the driver's side of the window and I turned left and there was a car parked right on the corner. It never should have been there. But it actually, it didn't remain there. It went 20 foot back down the road. <laughs> 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 and uh, there you are. 
so don't drive when it's frosty unless you clean your window. But I learned that secret then. And so did my car. I sold it and bought a new one because it had a terrible dent in its left eye. Um, but what we have to realize is, is all nature is fallen. It's out of the way. And man's out of the way. We're all, our natures are perverted. We are perverted. Now, it might be that your perversion is socially acceptable. But you're perverted. And that's the way man is. Now, some people are fortunate their perversions aren't bad. Other people, <laughs> well, their perversions are worse. Uh, and, you know, yeah, I, won't <laughs> I won't look over that way, but some people's perversions, honestly, um, they, they, they just make you wonder. Whole races are perverted. And, you know, it, it, in a nation, you'll find the extremes. Um, I'm, I'm surprised when I, I've traveled the world that there's kind of national characteristics in people. And the perversions pervade a whole nation in a spirit force. And then families in spirit force. And then uh, uh, friends, you find birds of the feather flock together, and there's a kind of spirit power takes hold of them. And that's awful. And those perversions go deep in our lives. And we need to see that we are ungodly, and we need God to set us free from our families, from our nation. Awful. When I was in Uganda, the Bugandans, they're a proud people. I've never met a people more proud than the African Bugandan. So proud, it's obnoxious. Uh, and when someone does well and begins to work hard and to work well and to earn money, do you know what they the people in the village do? They come one night and they burn his house, they burn his crops, they burn everything he possesses to keep him humble. In other words, their pride won't let someone be better off than they are. Almost sounds like Ken Livingston, doesn't it? Um, in spirit, it's the same thing, that yuck, spirit that is so envious and yet their pride, when they meet you in the road, they'll kneel down in the road and say, how do you do? And when they greet you, they'll never tell you the truth. You say, how are you? And they say, oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. I had my leg cut off this morning. Um, they, don't, uh, they don't ever, uh, their courtesy and politeness would never allow them to express the truth in the way it should be expressed. Now that is a pride then you've got the other nations. But I mean, that's just one I picked out, the Japanese. I mean, the Japanese are most offensive people. They call us Caucasians big noses. I find that offensive, highly offensive. But any white man's a big nose. 
and um, looking at some of you, they're justified. Um, but their whole attitude is one of anti-God. They're materialistic and savage. There is a spirit in them that is vicious and it's part of their nature. I haven't been to a, a Japanese cinemas, but I'm told that if you go to one, everything is very gory. They like, you know, real violence. They, they love it. They lap it up. And if you walk down, in, in, as we did, in Tokyo, it's unbelievable. You'll see all these people, they have a kind of parade areas, and there's just street after street of these shops with bright lights, and every one of them's got full of space invaders. And all these Japanese, little slit-eyed, small noses, sitting there, and pressing the switches and trying to shoot down these things. And they spend fortunes on it, don't they, lovey? It was just to walk there and see it. They were just transfixed. Uh, and the places were just packed, teeming with people, and were queuing up to get on their little machine. What a awful, dumb, cluck, stupid, pathetic people. I, I could never comprehend it, but that's their minds. Their minds are, uh, I don't know, there's something wrong with them. And, of course, it's a land of great darkness. Um, and I hope you don't meddle with those things. The thing that captures the heart and grips them, they have to be doing something all the time. There's that, you know, driving, driving, driving. But it's the nature of the nation. If you uh, shame your family, um... Uh, it was um, sad while we were in Hawaii. Um, one of the people we knew there was Japanese, a very lovely brother who had come to Christ and was soundly converted. And um, while we were there, we heard that his brother had gone out and shot himself. What had happened, he'd got a girlfriend and he began to take this girlfriend out. And after four months, they decided to get engaged and he found out she was a prostitute had no idea she led a double life one thing with him and he found out and the shame of it he couldn't didn't dare go back and tell his family so he went out and shot himself what pride in a family to make a man if I'd found out I'd have shot the woman but not, not in Japan you go out and shoot yourself I mean she was the problem not him but that's the English temperament that's no better but uh, <laughs> just saying what I'd have done. That's what I said to the guy. I said, why didn't he go out and shoot the woman? It was the shame, the terrible, to bring shame to the family name was an awful thing. And so he went out and took his own life. Awful, isn't it? And that's the way they are. Whole nation bowed down without God. And yet they worship Buddha, they worship, you know, their ancestors and they'll light candles to them. And we need to understand it's this ungodliness has brought in a total perversion in our hearts. And we worship things that aren't really God. And we have values that don't come from God 
And all our values need to be turned round till they're Christ-centered. Why, well, I met two people the other day, and uh, one, the man said to me, it was a married couple, and the man said as he got out of his car, well, I like the best of everything. And I thought, oh, one of them. You know, uh, somehow that lusting spirit, totally contrary to God, I don't believe we should have the worst of everything, but it's, you know, that spirit that grabs at it and desires it. And we have to learn and realize that Christ died for those people, the ungodly, the people without God. And we need to see that we were with like that. Maybe our perversions are less obvious, but basically all of us, have twisted personalities and twisted lives and twisted values until we come to Christ. And after we've come to Christ, we realize how much more <laughs> twisted we were than we thought when we started. Uh, we think we're doing pretty well, and once we get saved and we believe for forgiveness of sins, we think things are getting all right. And it's after about six months you realize you were more wrong than you thought you were when you started out. And you get to the stage of saying, well, how could God save someone like me? And the further on you go, the more sinful you see yourself to be. And you realize your only hope's in him. True? Uh, you don't see your twisted deformity until you're really beginning to get into light. And what amazes me is there's so many evangelicals, charismatics, who think they're all right. And if you talk to them, oh, you know, I know I'm saved, I know I'm this, I know I'm that, they have no awareness of their own degradation. If you told them, they'd say, oh, yes, yeah, you, you know, I know I'm a sinner. But they don't really see how twisted they are inside. And each one of us, it would do us good sometime to sit down and look at our twisted, perverted humanity. Because we all are aren't we? Hmm? Unfortunately, the problem with some people is they're too good. They've never really... Um, better be careful how I phrase it. They've never had a good sin in their lives. That's their problem. Um, and... There, there's something about them that they're self-righteous in, in an obnoxious way and they need dealing with. Would to God they'd fall and their halos would slip and get tarnished and they'd fall on their faces in the mud and see what they're made of. They'd discover the mud is the same substance as they are. Uh, we need to come to that realization in our hearts and our lives. Ungodly. And then it goes on to say, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Now, I don't know if that verse has ever bothered you or you've wondered what it meant. Well, what it means is this. It's quite simple. A righteous man is someone who is what you'd call a goody two-shoes, you know? Um, walks a straight line and keeps the law, jot and tittle, evangelical. 
You know the type of person talks with a polite, ever so nice accent and um, is ever so, and you know, would never get angry and has the uh, smile and has the uh, manner and has the breeding to be an evangelical. You know, a good middle class twerp. Um, I trust you know what a twerp is. Um, someone like that who goes around and that is a righteous man and there were plenty in Paul's day. He says as touching the law he was blameless and there are a lot of people who live religiously very right. Now for that type of person there's something wrong about that type of person. Do you know the thing that's wrong about it is their heart's never in it. It's not a religion of the heart. It's a religion of outward conformity. And you don't feel any warmth when you come in amongst that type of person. They're ever so polite and welcoming and sugary sweet and stuff, but you never feel you get to know the real person. You never really get to know what they're like. It's just a superficial surface thing. Do you know what I mean? That is what religion is, and it's obnoxious. Now, you wouldn't lay down your life for someone like that, would you? Someone who hadn't really got his heart in it. Now, that is a righteous man. And, and Paul says here, that he says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. I mean, that would be a very rare thing. If you went and laid your life down for someone who was just a religious hypocrite, really, um, and yet, you know, kept all the law. But it wasn't a heart thing. And yet, peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. Now, there's something that's different. There's a different quality about a good man because there's none good save God, said Jesus. And therefore, a good man, that's one who's had a real experience of Christ or one who's come and has a real, is a real partaker of the nature of God there is something that will cause you, you could lay down your life for them. There's something about them that's attractive. Not their nature, not their natural disposition, but there's something about them that's attractive and you'd be prepared to do anything for them. Didn't you find in the world there were some people, I, I used to find when I was at school, which was a long time ago, there were certain people that I would find it easy to obey. They were the people that were good at sport uh, and were good sportsmen because I could look up and admire a quality in them. And the ones I couldn't stand were the people that had brains and no sporting ability because to me uh, manhood has something to do with being able to hit a cricket ball right over the sight screen and be able to run straight through and crash tackle someone and lay them out flat. Now that's what I called manhood, you know? There was something about it. I like a man to be a man. Uh, um, and, and there was that. Now I found it easy to relate to that type of person and admire them. Now I know that some of you would find that distasteful, but for me that was easy. And in all our natures, there is something in a, a man that can get you to go to the ends of the earth for them. True? There are certain individuals that you will really commit your life to. 
and you'd probably be prepared to die for. Probably. Per adventure. No? Well, wives, you'd be prepared to die for your husbands, wouldn't you? Well, maybe I shouldn't ask that, that's unfair. Husbands, you wouldn't be prepared to die for your wives, would you? <laughs> you should. Um, <laughs> if you keep living with them, you probably will. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, <laughs> but what one has to understand is it says here, yet peradventure for a good man, some, not all, but some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now Paul has taken the argument logically and says for a righteous man, that's a good man in the Lord's eyes, a man who walks rightly in the Lord's eyes, for that type of person, scarcely anyone. Yet peradventure for a good man, that's a man who puts his whole heart and life into it, some would even dare to die. It's gone from the, the man who's just righteous outwardly to the really good man through and through. Some would be prepared to put their lives down for him. And yet, he says, Christ took you when you weren't even righteous you weren't a person who walked right. You were an out-and-out, out degraded, twisted, demented sinner. At that point, Christ laid his life down for you. So Paul's put a comparison. Now who would die for the likes of you? Christ did. Who would want to lay down their life for the likes of you? Jesus Christ has already. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what we have to understand is God's love caused Jesus Christ to come down when we were his enemies and to lay down his life for us knowing that we would live as his enemies for many years till we came to salvation and Christ was prepared to come and lay his life down with no guarantee Just lay it down and bear our sin, your sin and my sin, in his own body on the tree. Now the whole purpose in Paul putting this over so clearly in the scripture is there are so many people whose salvation hinges upon the way they live and what they do. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now what it's saying is, you see, that nothing you do, when Christ died for you, you were a reprobate, a sinner, wicked, evil, degenerate, twisted, distorted, perverted, ugly, untruthful, vile, obnoxious, and everything else, and Christ came and died for you. He didn't wait to lay down his life, and his life isn't laid down for the one who's good. Christ died for the sinner. That's why when Jesus went, do you remember he was in Simon the Pharisee's house, in Luke, what is it, it's Luke 14, he was in, in Simon the Pharisee's house, and there he was, 
And the woman came and washed his feet with her tears. And Simon looked at her and said, if you know, looked at Jesus and said, if he knew what manner of woman that was, he wouldn't let her do that. Um, and we've talked on that at some other um, time. But what I want to point out is that Simon was told by Jesus. Jesus said, look, he who's forgiven much loveth much. He who's forgiven little loveth little. It's when we realize the depth of our perversion and when we realize the depth of our sin, we begin to really love Christ. If we only think we've always been good people and we never did much wrong, then we won't love very much. Jesus said to Simon, He that loveth is forgiven little, loveth little. So there's a great advantage with realizing how much the depth of your depravity goes to. I'm not recommending that you should now go and exhibit your depravity. It's there. Christ wants to deliver you from it. But realize it's not because of what you do. You can't clean up your life. There was a young man who came to the church recently and he said he'd come back when he got his life right. Well, that's absurd. The idea of coming to church and the idea of coming to meetings is because your life's all wrong. And the longer you come to church, the more wrong you realize your life is. To go away and say, well, when I put my life right, then I can come and accept Christ is absurd. Because you'll see as you go on that your life is more and more wrong, not more and more right. If you could go out and put your life right, you wouldn't need Christ. No one can put their lives right. We have to look at ourselves with all our twisted uh, humanity and see that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners and we are saved by grace. And Paul is reiterating that argument and he goes on in the next meeting to explain how. Let's pray.